Now we're going to uh, look at God's Word, Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. This is a passage which looks at Jesus' healing, and it's uh, a passage which tells us a great deal about ourselves and our need of Jesus Christ. So let's read this passage, Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered. Yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he'd put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, Little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. It is a holy word. It is pure. It is without error. It is alive. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It shows us who you are, who we are, and what your way is. May your word be life to us, this morning. May it pierce into the inmost part of our being. May our pride be broken. May our brokenness be healed. And may our spirits be brought to life. In Jesus' name, amen. The Australian police are being given Bibles. I thought this was extremely interesting and almost highly amusing. And people were laughing at it, but I thought it was a great idea. 
When you qualify in apparently the New South Wales police, you are given a Bible because the police have become so corrupt that the head of the police department reckons that a Bible would be extremely helpful. Children today, if any of you have read a little bit of the horrific case down in England, so horrific that the newspapers won't even report it in any kind of detail, you'll uh, have seen and heard lots of columns and things about children today and they're in a terrible mess and we need more moral guidance and so on. There are people who will come to the university here. I had a chaplain's meeting this week and we talked about the fact that there are lots of new freshers coming and people need guidance and help. And surely that's what the Bible does. It gives us a little bit of moral guidance and help. And actually, a little bit of religion in moderation, like alcohol, won't do you any harm. But too much and it will create a great deal of problems. I've actually heard people argue well, I don't mind getting involved in church because, um, and these are some of the reasons I've heard, it's good company, it's quite entertaining, you get a bit of support, uh, there are good-looking girls, depending on which church you go to, uh, that's obviously from a male perspective. I've never heard a girl say the other way. I've never heard a girl say, I go to church because there are good-looking guys. Now, maybe that indicates more purity or um, just a different set of perspectives or that there just aren't any good-looking guys. But people say that. They say it's nice to have some standards as long as you're not too fanatical or too religious. And, you know, in the church, we sometimes go along with that. We sometimes say, yeah, that's true. People need more moral standards. It's good uh, for people to have company. It's good for people not to be lonely, and it's good for us to be able to, to, to share and so on. And all those things are true. But, and it's a big but, it's not enough. It's not enough. It's superficial and it does not deal with the real deep issues. I got a letter this week from a guy who's very confused, and he said, this group of Christians I've been with have been wonderful. They have been so loving and so kind and so helpful and so hospitable. Sounds a wonderful testimony. But he said, I've just found out about them on YouTube. They're called the children of God, David Berg and so on. It's a cult of the, one of the worst kinds of cults possible. And this guy's saying, I'm really, really confused, David, because I hear what you're saying from the Bible, and it's true, and I, and I see these people, and they offer so much, and I know that it's wrong, and yet, and you can understand some of the confusion, because the moralism, or the hospitality, or all the other stuff, it does get offered, and sometimes it gets offered better, inverted commas, by those who are extremely dangerous, who teach falsehood. And that's why it's so important for us to grasp and to lay hold on what the gospel is really about, because otherwise it is just religion. And it may be religion with a nice tinge, it may be religion with benefits coming along, but if it is just religion, it either becomes very superficial or it does a great deal of harm. Now, what the passage we're looking at tells us is that the greatest need that we have is faith in Jesus which sounds easy, which rolls off the tongue, which can be glibly stated, but it's not quite that straightforward. Here we have two people who have real faith in Christ, a real, serious, personal commitment. The disciples in Mark's gospel are, are not there. They're getting there, 
But these two people, I think, indicate what it is. The woman uh, who'd been, the healing of the woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years, and that's the kind of meat in the sandwich for the healing of Jairus's daughter. Um, this is a story that, by the way, is told in both Matthew and Luke, and it's the first time that we get Jesus dealing with death. So, let's look first of all at the plight of these people, and uh, we look at um, what Jesus did. Now, here's another problem that we've got when we come to the Bible. There are people who come, and they want to treat the Bible like one of those how-to books. So, they're kind of saying, look, get on with it. Don't take so long. Just tell us what we've got to do. That's all we want to hear. We come to church. Tell us how to be more successful. Tell us how to be healed. Tell us what we've got to do. And I'm not going to do that because the Bible doesn't do that. What the Bible does is it tells you what's been done. It tells you who Jesus is, and it's your response to that. Now, you have to have something to respond to. So, the Bible is not uh, a self-help book in that way. So, we're going to look at what uh, Jesus actually did. First of all, let me just say something about the two people. The, the story itself is, is fairly straightforward. Uh, this one, Jesus, he crosses the Sea of Galilee. In the previous story, the story of the demonic uh, possessed man, Jesus was asked to go away. Here, Jesus is asked to come uh, and is asked to come and help. It's a story of two people, both of whom have very different social standings. One is a man who has significant social standing, who has significant religious importance. The other is a woman who is poor and who is excluded. But both are in great need. And one of the things that we can say about the Bible, no matter who you are, no matter what your circumstances, every single one of us falls into the category of being people who are in great need of Jesus. Jairus was a synagogue ruler. The synagogue was ruled by a board of elders. They had to maintain good order, and Jairus was a member of that board. He was the person responsible for organizing the services, but all of that meant nothing to him because his 12-year-old daughter was dying. Now, we don't know what he believed about Jesus or what he knew about Jesus, but enough. Look at verse 23. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Is there anything more desperate than a father saying, my little daughter is dying? Luke records that the girl was an only child. He didn't have many children. He had one who was the absolute apple of his eye. The, the phrase that's translated here, my little daughter, is, is a very affectionate term. My, my darling, my, my, my only one. It's just, it's just filled with emotion and filled with pathos and, and filled with agony and filled with pain. And then there's the woman. Verse 25, a woman was there who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years. What was wrong with her? An excessive flow of blood, making her weak, making her tired. Now, that was not an uncommon illness, and the, the Jewish Talmud gave 11 cures for such a trouble. Believe it or not, it included the following. You have to carry a barley corn 
which has been found in the dung of a white she-ass. Now, that's pretty well like quite an incredible uh, medicine to go and get. But that was one of the prescriptions. Or the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen, ra- in a linen rag in summer, and in winter it had to be a cotton rag. I have no idea why, but these were the prescriptions for dealing with bleeding. If you were a woman who had internal or continual bleeding. Maybe this woman didn't go along with that, but look what she did in verse 26. She suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and spent all she had. No NHS there. She spent all her money on doctors, and the doctors were not able to cure her. As one does, I was reading the Hippocratic Oath uh, this week, and it was just fascinating seeing how it all... I hope, I don't know actually if the medics here, if you get the Hippocratic Oath, you should. It's brilliant. Um, It's been the standard for medicine in the world for two and a half thousand years. And it's absolutely uh, fascinating reading it and a a great oath to to stand by. But doctors in these days are the same as doctors today. Sometimes doctors can help, sometimes they can't. And this woman was in a situation where she spent all her money and they couldn't help her. She spent every penny she had, spent all that she had on doctors. It's possible that she'd been rich, but all that had now gone. There's a, an apocryphal book called Tobit, Tobit chapter 2, verse 10. I went to the physicians, but they did not help me. I thought some of the medics might appreciate this. There's a rabbi called Rabbi Judah, and this was what he taught. Sailors are most of them saintly. The best among doctors is destined for hell. So... <laughs> Um, sometimes doctors didn't quite have the high reputation that they have in, in, in our culture. On the other hand, the book of Sirach says this, cultivate the physician in accordance with the need of him. For him also hath God ordained. God hath created medicines out of the earth, and let not a discerning man reject them. Luke, in writing about this, and of course Luke was a doctor, said that the woman, her disease was incurable. And what Luke is doing there, by the way, is he was defending his profession. He was saying she went to doctors, she spent all this money. People were saying doctors are useless. Luke is saying, actually, there's nothing that we could do. Her disease was incurable. Whatever, she had lost her health, she'd lost her wealth, she'd lost her standing in the community. Why the latter? Why had she lost her standing in the community? Go to Leviticus chapter 15 and you'll see why. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus chapter 15, and let's read at verse 25. Leviticus 15, verse 25. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she'll be unclean as long as she has the discharge, just as in the days of her period. Any bed she lies on while her discharge continues will be unclean, as is her bed during her monthly period, and anything she sits on will be unclean as during her period. Whoever touches them will be unclean. He must wash his clothes and bathe with water, and he'll be unclean till evening. When she is cleansed from her discharge, she must count off seven days, and after that she will be ceremonially clean. On the eighth day, she must take two doves or two young pigeons and bring them to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. In this way, he will make atonement for her before the Lord, for the uncleanness of her discharge. Now, without going into all the details of that, and I'm sure you don't want to, um, the point about it is just simply this. 
that if there was a discharge of blood that was out with the monthly period, the woman was considered unclean. This woman bled continually. She bled continually under the Mosaic law, under the, the culture that existed at that time. She was considered permanently unclean. Anything she touched, anyone she touched, would have been considered unclean. It was a horrendous and a horrible condition to be in. Twelve long years. You'll notice the little girl was twelve years. This woman was twelve years that she had been unclean and ostracized. Her plight was great. Then look at what both what happened in both these cases and what they did, because both Jairus' father and the woman, whose name we do not know, they had both heard about Jesus. Look what Jairus did. He came to Jesus, verse 22. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet. He was humble and believing. He confessed at his, his need. He fell prostrate, showing respect, showing desperation. He forgot his dignity. He forgot his pride. Twelve-year-olds don't appreciate being called little. But this was a dad, and it was his wee lamb. In Jewish tradition, a girl becomes a woman aged 12 years and one day. But for him, there was nothing he could do. His little girl was going to be a young woman who died as a young woman. He believed that a touch from Jesus would heal her, and he asked that she would live and be well. Then the woman herself, she came to Jesus, and in a sense, her faith was even greater. Not asking Jesus to touch her, but if only she could touch Jesus' clothes, she thought. Look at verse 28. If I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. This was also desperation, not just superstition. This was desperation. Other helpers had failed. She turns to Jesus. Matthew records that she just touched one of the four tassels on his garment. Jewish men were required to have a garment with four tassels on it. He, she touched just one of those four tassels, Matthew says. She was sure he wouldn't even notice because it was hanging loose. It's not as if she was grabbing his sleeve. Was it superstition or magic? Look at verse 34. No. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Somehow, she had some concept of who Jesus was, and she believed in Jesus, and she trusted Jesus, and she felt that he had power. It's interesting that the disciples were kind of incredulous about verse 31, about Jesus asking, what do you mean you see the people crowding around you? Of course they're touching you. You're in a crowd. They're going to be touching you. But they were taking him too literally. Jesus wasn't just talking about physical touch. He was talking about the touch of faith. The disciples, I think, showed a lack of respect and reverence and a lack of understanding in addressing the Lord in this way. They're almost saying, don't be stupid. Of course someone touched you. But there was something that this woman had, something that she believed, something that she knew that Christ was able to help with and to identify. And so let's look at his response. First of all, to Jairus in verse 24. He went with him. Jesus went with him. Why would he not listen? He did. To the woman, he healed her. It was instant. The hemorrhaging stopped but the healing cost him something. He realized that power had gone out for him. And then he, he looked for her. 
Look at verse 32. Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. The woman was terrified. Verse 33. Why? Because she knew that what she'd done was wrong. It was against the law. She had touched a man whilst she was ceremonially unclean, and therefore she had defiled him. And not just a man, but this great teacher. She was a woman. That was the other thing. And it was not normal for a woman to speak in public to such a great teacher. If you think our culture is misogynistic, this was way beyond misogynistic. And so she was terrified. Terrified because of what she'd done ceremonially and legally and terrified culturally. Perhaps she was aware of being healed and of the real power that Jesus had. But strangely enough, when you become aware of the real power that Jesus has, that doesn't make you comfortable either. Jesus is extremely discomforting. The notion that people have is, I'll come to church, I'll worship Jesus a wee bit, I have faith in Jesus a wee bit, and it makes me feel good, and it makes me feel comfortable. No. If you really come to know Jesus, it is not comfortable. And yet, look what Jesus does. He doesn't treat her harshly. In fact, He's willing to be ceremonially defiled in order for her to be healed. Now, I think there's more there as well, because I think that He wants her to confess. Psalm 50, verse 15, we sang it, "'Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me.'" Jesus wanted her to know not just her physical healing, but spiritual healing. She needed to confess with her mouth. She believed, and now she confessed, trembling and shaking, but thankful. Philippians 2, verse 12, "'Continue to work out your salvation.'" with fear and trembling. The result of all this, of course, is that she can go in peace. Look at verse 34. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. She's free. She's restored. She's healed. She's forgiven. Now, we go back to verse 36 in Jairus. Don't be afraid. He's been told in verse 35, your daughter is dead. It's pretty cold and harsh. Sometimes human beings can be pretty cold and harsh don't bother the teacher anymore, your daughter's dead. Jesus responds by saying, don't be afraid, just believe. That could be one of the harshest things that's ever being said. I have come across people who have said to Christians who are suffering or to Christians, I've even come across people whose child has died and they've been told by other Christians, there'll be a miracle, your child will be raised from the dead. When you say that and it's wishful thinking, When you say that and you don't know it, it is cruel and harsh. And if Jesus was not able to do this, then it would have been one of the cruelest things possible, offering a false hope in a desperate situation. Don't be afraid. Forgive me saying this, but what a daft statement. Your daughter's died. You're going to be so upset. Jesus is saying, look, you came to me for help because you believed. Now carry on believing. So they go to the house, verse 39. The hired mourners are there, commotion and wailing. You hired professional mourners, just as in the same way as if we have a wedding, you may hire a band to play. Well, they hired a band for the funeral, and they hired people to wail. There's a commotion and a wailing. 
Jeremiah 9.17, consider now, call for the wailing women to come, send for the most skillful of them, let them come quickly and wail over us till our eyes overflow with tears and water streams from our eyelids. Matthew records that there was a flute playing as well. In fact, it was a rule that a man had to hire two flute players for his wife's funeral. He obviously hired at least one for his daughter's funeral, and she's dead. She's dead. She's not in a coma. She's not asleep. She's dead. Luke records, the doctor Luke records that her spirit had left her. And they laugh at him. Verse 40, the child's not dead but asleep. They laughed at him. And what does he do? He puts them out of the room. He takes the three disciples, his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He speaks to the girl in her native language, Aramaic, not Hebrew, talithakum, which is, the phrase is a a very loving and gentle phrase. It really, the the way that, if you were going to translate it into how we would speak, it would be, we pet, we lamb, come on, get up. And immediately she stands up and walks around. Verse 42, at this they were completely astonished. That's the understatement of the year. They were astonished with great astonishment, is what it says literally. Now, I wonder what we think of all this. Taking it for granted is dreadful. Ah, Jesus, he does miracles. That's what he does. That's a dreadful way to be in. Looking at it and saying, these poor ignorant people, they didn't understand. She was just asleep. Now we understand much better. It was just a coma and so on. No. It's a patronizing and arrogant way which works from the assumption that miracles don't happen. It also works from the assumption that Jesus is not God because uh, the atheist philosopher Anthony Flew, when uh, he changed his mind and decided that there was a God, he wrote that miracles were not a problem for him because once you give, concede that there is a God, then that God by definition is able to break the rules, if you like, that he has made in terms of nature. The miracles, says one man, are not the product of a fevered imagination. They are recorded with the utmost restraint and with vivid circumstantial detail. The woman was raised, the child was raised from the dead, and then there follows the most unreasonable request of the year. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this, as if. How is that going to happen? You just witnessed something really quite extraordinary. I think Christ is thinking about the crowd and everything that comes from that. But I just love it. I love the reality of this in this sense. He told them to give her something to eat. Go and get something to eat. That's got to be some meal. That's just, you can, the, the, the joy of, of that meal for the father, for I'm assuming the mother is still alive and the, and the child. What a great change in that house, from a house of mourning to a house of rejoicing. And she, too, is able to go in peace. Of course, she will die. She will die. I mean, she didn't live on forever after that. But it's just a a testimony, a foretaste of what will come. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 14 says, We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. We, if you are a Christian, we have great hope because of what God has done in Christ. 
Now, that's the story. That's what's recorded for us, and it's recorded for a reason, to tell us who Jesus is, to tell us what Jesus does, to show our great need, and to show how we respond. Now, what it's not is it's not a story that tells us that we can go around or that even Jesus will go around and heal every 12-year-old who's sick or every little girl who's dying. That's not what it means, and it would be foolish to do that, to, to suggest that. But it is showing us who Jesus is. It is showing us what He does. It is showing us how He defeats death. It is showing us His character and His compassion. It is showing us a little bit our great need of Him. And that's where, this is where it connects for me. As I said, I was at a chaplaincy meeting this week in the room upstairs and I was astounded to hear that there are 4,000 freshers who are arriving in Dundee yesterday and today. 4,000. When I first came to Dundee, there was only 4,000 people in the whole university. There are 4,000 freshers. Now, Aberté, I think it's about 1,500. That means that this weekend there are 5,500 young people, new young people, who are coming to study in this city. They will face opportunities and choices and we all face opportunities and choices and in terms of uh, reaching out and helping. Do you know, far more people will become Christians before they leave university than afterwards. It's just a great time to communicate and to share the gospel. I'm not, um, how should we say the word? For those of you who come from church backgrounds and know what a charismatic is, I'm, I'm probably not a card-carrying charismatic, okay? I keep my hands by my side, and I take medicine. Um, that's, I, I, I'm not, I, I don't get lots of visions of God speaking to me and things like that. But uh, I got an email this week from uh, a man who's become a friend, a church I spoke to down in London. And I, I thought this was, it was a dream he had, and I was just greatly affected by this dream. And I'm going to read it to you because I think it, it illustrates what I'm trying to say. He said this. This is what he wrote. Last night, I had one of the most disturbing and vivid dreams I've ever had. I woke up, and it took me ages to come back to reality. However, I remembered every detail of the dream accurately. In the dream, I was at a party. It was full of people, and it promised to be the party of the century. Beautiful people, great music. However, it soon changed. Violence set in, jealousy, anger, acute drunkenness leading to sickness, drug addiction, sex addiction, fights and arguments, gang clashes, police raids, breakdown of relationships, and much, much more. The one thing that really stuck in my mind was two attractive young girls who were prostitutes with their pimp. They were well-dressed, but on a second look at them, I realized how grotesque they were. One of them had half of their face missing due to cancer, eating away at her mouth and cheeks. She could hardly talk or move her face. However, she seemed oblivious to her pain and her illness. All she did was pester me for two cigarettes. She was obsessed with getting these cigarettes. Her addiction had grasped her so tightly that she could no longer see the bigger picture of her life. Her health was not apparent to her. She seemed oblivious to her appearance. She was due to die at any minute. The other girl was riddled with disease. I believed it to be an STD that she'd picked up during her time in prostitution. Her face was blistered, her cheekbones stuck out, and her cheeks were drawn in. 
Her breath stank and her eyes were bloodshot. She could hardly stand due to weakness and her drug addiction. All she did was hassle everyone for unprotected sex, unaware that she was at death's door. She had no concern for the health of her customers, no concern for her family or friends, and no concern for her child that was behind her in a pushchair. Her addiction and her business were her life and obsession. Her disease was her end. The pimp just wanted money. He saw in full that the two girls were at death's door, but all he wanted was his money. He was just as much an addict as the two girls, although the substance he was addicted to was money. This place, which at the outset seemed to promise pleasures and happiness and excitement, I soon realized was hell, probably the worst place I have ever been to. I woke up and realized I did not ever want to go to hell, and I did not want anyone else to go there either. And this is what he said, citing C.S. Lewis. Hell is a consequence and an eternal trajectory of our own choices. Even in hell, surrounded by our own sufferings and punishment, we will still be consumed with our own selfishness. Now, it is an awful thing when you see human beings creating hell. See, people have a lot of problem with the whole idea about hell. But ultimately, hell is, as Augustine's argues, the absence of good and the absence of God and the ultimate consequence of our own choices. What seems to bring selfish pleasure in our life quickly turns sour and bad and then holds and binds us for eternity. And what Jesus did with this 12-year-old girl, what he did with this woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years, is a picture and a symbol of what he does to rescue all of us who maybe are not chronically sick and who certainly are not dead, but we are spiritually dead and we are spiritually sick. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And we have the option of choosing life, of pleading with Jesus. I'm dying, and I live in a dying world. And I want to be healed. I want to be forgiven. I want to be restored. You see, that's what Christianity is about. It's not about living a more moral life. It's not about having a society in which people feel restrained so that 11-year-old kids don't go around torturing people. It's not about having a society in which we never get sick. It's about having a relationship with Jesus Christ where the most fundamental need of our lives, forgiveness and renewal and spiritual life and healing, takes place. Faith comes with an empty hand, nothing to bring, nothing to negotiate with, and faith with that empty hand receives everything. That's why, if you're not a Christian, I want want to urge you to think about that, to discover Christ and to know Christ. This is the city of discovery. The greatest discovery that anyone will ever make is of Jesus Christ. And for those of us who are Christians, we are to live like Jesus. Ephesians 5, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And we have to get on with the work of Jesus. We have to take on the forces of darkness that demean human life and lead to hell. And we take them on 
not by campaigning, not by moralism, not by being really religious at some point, but we take them on just by following Jesus and by being like Jesus and by the power and love of Jesus Christ. This story that we've read is fantastic. It is incredible. It is astonishing if it's true. And I believe absolutely if it's true, that it is true. And that means that if you are a believer here, you just have something that is so powerful and so wonderful and so amazing that, that if you are aware of that, if you could grasp that, you'd never have to be told to witness. Witness sounds like some kind of, I don't know, some kind of thing that you get brownie points with God for. You would never have to be told to witness because you just, you'd, you would have to be held back because you're your heart is breaking because you're desperate for people to know. Not because you want them to join your church or you want them to become like you, but because you see the cancer eating away and you know the healing that is there in Jesus Christ. We worship Him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for Your Word. Bless it to us. Help us to follow You to seek you and to serve you in all things. Lord, if any of us do not know you, may we give our lives to you. And those of us who do, may we see you as the Christ who says to us, Talithakum, come. May we be as Jairus, pleading you to come with us and hear you say to us, I am coming. And may we know, O Lord, that our faith has healed us, that we can go in peace and be freed from our suffering. In your name we ask it. Amen.